Good evening or morning or afternoon, wherever or whenever you are. This is Doth Protest Too Much, a Protestant historical theology podcast. This is our episode number five. I want to put a quick word of appreciation for our listeners uh, who've taken the time to tune in. We've uh, been steadily climbing in listenership for our episodes, and I uh, I definitely thank our previous guests. I could not be doing this without you, so thank you. You know who you are. Well, I'll just say who you are, Dr. Kilcrease, Stephen, <laughs> and Reverend Ben. Uh, and uh, so we can be listened to on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and various other podcasts or audio digital uh, service providers. If you happen to get on up. If you happen to listen through Apple Podcasts, which I don't, I do Spotify, but if you do Apple, Apple Podcasts, feel free to give us a good rating. We'd greatly appreciate it. Maybe uh, bump up the ratings and, uh, and uh, catch some more people that, um, that would be interested in listening to this podcast and put it on their radar. So, And we're also on YouTube as well. You can search for us. So Today we have a special guest. We always have a special guest, but this is a really special guest. He is an Episcopal priest, Zach Neubauer, and he's an Episcopal priest in Macon, Georgia. Did I pronounce that town right? Yep. All right. And uh, he has a BA from Moody Bible Institute, a Master of Divinity from Trinity Episcopal School for Ministry. He's also president of the board, correct, for... The Evangelical Fellowship in the Anglican Communion, the USA branch, or sorry, EFAC USA for short. Yeah, EFAC USA, um, which I've just recently joined. I joined because I, I liked their label pin, and I'm uh, I'm kidding. I joined for other reasons. <laughs> I'm sorry, Zach. What were you saying? The, the lapel pins have been popular. You're, you're not the only one. Lapel. I pretty lapel, 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 lapel. It's like Augustine, Augustine. Yeah. I'll correct. Um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, uh, and I've known about his, uh, he's a prolific reader in evangelical Anglican authors. And we're definitely going to um, uh, dive into that this evening. So, um, so welcome, Zach. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty good. Thank you for this uh, first first time on a podcast. So first I'm time on a podcast. That is surprising. I am. I'm actually kind of surprised. I just. I feel like you would have been. You have I, the. I lay low. What can I say? So you lay low. You definitely do because you have the voice for it. I think. Yeah, the voice and and not the face. So that's why I had to double check and make sure that that we weren't we weren't videoing this uh, a face for radio. Yeah, this is strictly audio. Um, and. Uh, 
Yeah, so, I mean, yeah, you have the voice for it. I, I feel like you've listened to a lot of podcasts just by the way you're talking. Yeah. <laughs> uh, maybe you should think about starting one because I think you'd have a good one if you did. Um, I, I do think about starting. I always think I have about three episodes worth of content and, and then I would have to start digging. So once I, once I compile maybe 10 or 15 episodes of content, then I can jump on it. But, uh, but yeah, glad to, glad to be here and uh, excited to be chatting with you. Thank you. And there you go. I mean, I couldn't come up three episodes of content if, from, if it was worth my life. And that's why I'm dependent on the grace of guests like you. So thank you for being here. Um, so I haven't seen you in like six years. Uh, we met in person once. Yeah, you're the. Uh, were, were you the last Episcopalian who came through Seabury Western? Or are they? No, it was uh, Bexley. I was like the last Episcopalian. Oh, sorry. <laughs> last Episcopalian to come through Bexley Hall. I guess it was called Bexley Seabury, but. Um, well, it was, yeah, we met at Sewanee, and uh, it was during my three years of seminary, my first year at Bexley Seabury, and it, this was when, it, you know, Elizabeth's called, say, Bexley Hall, I guess it was, because it was the Columbus, Ohio incarnation, which was, you know, um, th that seminary, it was a small fiscal seminary that was uh, within Trinity Lutheran Seminary in Columbus for like two decades, and so that's where I went. First decade, the first year of my seminary, we we were um, we hosted, and for our listeners, this is the annual Episcopal Episcopal Seminarian Summit. It's where every year, the uh, every Episcopal seminary says sends like one or two or maybe three um, represent you know students to kind of represent their seminary, and they get all the seminarians from the different Episcopal seminaries together, and, uh, and they have like an annual summit and. Um, the first year we actually ho the first year of my seminary years, but they, we actually hosted it there in Ohio. And the second year, um, Sewanee hosted it, and Bexley Hall sent me, and that's where I met Zach. So uh, he was there from Trinity from Trinity. Uh, I I gotten that because I was actually I was actually at the one in Columbus, the the first one he did. So that's where I remember meeting. Oh, you you were there too. So yeah, um, so because. Um, yeah, I actually I actually ended up attending. Normally, I think how it works out is you um, you attend as, if you're selected, you attend as a as a um, middler and then as a senior. And I ended up attending three all three years that I was at Trinity. So I was in Columbus with you all that first year, and then Swanee the second year, and then um, the my third year was out at um, oh uh, CDSP. DSP, yes. Yeah, they they my that third year they invited Bexley. It was like because I I was there the year before Solani, so They're like, do you want to go to CDSP? And I think I had some. I, I think I had a lot of homework that weekend. <laughs> I was like, and I was like, yeah, that's that's a long way to travel. <laughs> so I didn't go, but um, but yeah. So uh, so yeah, we met in person once. I mean, it was a good, you know. But like the world is today, so many people know each other electronically yeah. and um but i'm very glad to kind of see i mean we're in zoom it's kind of see you in person again so tell us a little bit about uh efac usa 
Yeah, so, uh, and, and now my, my two-year-old has just wandered into the room, so give me, give me just a second. But You're good, EFAC man. You're good. Uh, is, is part of uh, the EFAC, EFAC Global, which was an organization that was uh, created by John Stott, um, kind of the one of the, one of the big names when you think of evangelical Anglicanism in the 20th century. And uh, so it's a group that John Stott started uh, in England and then uh, transferred to the U.S. in the uh, kind of mid to late 60s. Um, and it was under a few different names, but one of the names it was known by was Fellowship of Witness and under that name, Fellowship of Witness was responsible for starting Trinity School for Ministry uh, there in Pittsburgh. And so I think their first graduating class, uh, the dean would have my head. Uh, I don't have this off the top of my head. I think it's 72. Don't quote me on that. Um, yeah, it must be later than that. Anyway, um, they were, they say they're responsible for uh, Trinity School for Ministry's foundation and names that uh, like John Guest, who was a uh, rector in uh, Western Pennsylvania for a long time, John um, uh, Bishop, Bishop Howe, who had been in Central Florida for he had Bishop down there for a long time, he was part of that founding and, uh, and put on preaching conferences and, and events uh, throughout the 80s and 90s. And then, uh, with the with the great realignment of the uh, of the early aughts, kind of went uh, dormant. And so, while I was uh, at Trinity, um, discovered learned some more of that history. I, I didn't grow up Episcopalian. Um, I grew up in kind of non-denominational type churches. Discovered the Anglican tradition while living in England for a few years, and so came back to the states without. Um, having everything I knew about Anglicanism be abroad. So um, came back to the States and ended up at Trinity and discovered that there had been this legacy of evangelical Anglicanism here in the latter half of the 20th century. So, so because of that, um, found a few other folks and jump-started it, as it were, uh, kind of in 2014 or 15, I guess. Um, took over as president in... 17 or 18 it all kind of blurs together and so i've been doing that as president of the board for a few years so our main main thing that we have been doing the past few years is a annual conference and so our last one was down at uh the cathedral church of the advent in birmingham alabama we've been down in uh, central florida's conference center a few times um and there's um grow, growing steadily in number and uh finding like-minded folks so it's been it's been a fun thing to be part of. So I, I didn't know that. I didn't know you were you were part of the formation of the USA branch of EFAC. That's and that it had a part yeah. in the start of Trinity. I knew Trinity was one of the younger Episcopal seminaries. Um, yeah, but, I think it's still the youngest. Yeah, yeah, and so um, like I said, kind of in in two thousand three with Gene Robinson, and, and then realignment and whatnot um there there had been the organization but it just wasn't really functioning um as people went different directions and um and the that all that separation wasn't uh, wasn't helpful for the, the common cause of, yeah. of evangelism so so yeah i was um part of the small group that that jump started it re restarted it a rebirth yeah, yeah. Oh, okay yeah and um 
and it's a re and it's and it's a it's bringing people together because you have your board is kind of made up comprised of the Episcopal Church and Anglican Church North America. Yeah, that's something we've been we've been very intentional about. Um, it's been it's been really cool. Um, kind of at the beginning, there were there were some folks who had been part of EFAC in the in the late 90s, early 2000s that uh, weren't even speaking to each other anymore because of different jurisdictions and whatnot and um, have seen some some long-term relationships mended. Um, and our board is, uh, right now we have seven folks on the board. I think, let's see, one, two, three. I think we're still at four. I think we're at four Episcopalians and, and three uh, ACNA folks, but we try to we try to keep the board pretty evenly balanced um, just as a way of recognizing that um, there are, are a lot of differences and, and, and rightfully so uh, between the various jurisdictions, but um, there's a lot of commonalities as, as well. And so, um, so yeah, we, the annual conference and um, part of our, part of our goals that we're working on are finding if there's churches who are looking for somebody of a more uh, rector of a more evangelical bent, trying to make those connections. Um, and that's been something that we've been excited seeing happen in the past few years. So, mm -hmm. um, but mostly about, mostly about fellowship and, and encouragement. That's um, if people can walk away feeling, feeling better about the work they're doing in their local, local ministry and uh, feeling like they can, contribute something to to others and to receive something from others um, that's really been the big the most satisfying part of it well and, and i think jesus christ is happy because if if there's people that uh intend on following him and worshiping him and they come from these different church bodies i think he wants them together so uh thank you for that work you do so uh Kind of diving into, I was reading some of the some of the statements of EFAC. One is to one that really caught my eye is you state to encourage and provide training for biblical preaching and teaching in the Episcopal and Anglican churches. Um, biblical preaching, break that down. What's biblical preaching? What's biblical preaching? That's that's uh, that's a good question. I think another another phrase that you that you might hear that's uh, probably fairly equivalent is expository preaching. Yes. Uh, so um, biblical biblical preaching or expository preaching is is preaching that takes the word seriously. Um, that um, is one. Oh, let's see if I can get this right. One one illustration that a, a mentor of mine used to use was that sometimes. Um, Sometimes preachers preach the word and the scripture behind them, um, kind of, well, it's, it's back there somewhere, but you don't really need to pay attention to that, pay attention to me um, and, and what I'm saying. Uh, and sometimes um, scripture, sometimes uh, preachers will preach with the scripture in front of them, but they never, they never show that scripture to the, to the congregation. So they... You, you assume that what they're saying is coming from scripture, but you, it's, that's maybe difficult to tell. Sure. And, um, expository preaching or biblical preaching is, is preaching with the, with the, with the, uh, with the preacher holding, holding the text out and, and saying here, you can, you can see what I'm saying is based off of the text and comes from the, and, and then the implications, uh, come from the text. And so I think that's probably a, um, probably the most, 
the most concrete example. Um, many, some, sometimes expository teaching can, can mean a, a trust of lectionaries, and so kind of uh, preaching le Lectio Continua or, or through entire books of the Bible. Um, that doesn't that doesn't always have to be the case, but that sometimes is the case. And I think that's something that sometimes we as um, Episcopalians and Anglicans forget that the, the, the lectionary is there for us and, and, and us, not us for the lectionary. Um, and there's, there's provisions in, in the, in our traditions to uh, not follow the lectionary from time to time. And so that can be another way that it gets, uh, happens, but, I think at the at the heart of it is is preaching that takes takes the text seriously and um, seeks to uh, show that what the preacher is saying uh, comes comes from the text and the implications of this of what you may preach come from the text and so and I think that's um, part of part of what it means to be Protestant um, kind of going going back big picture Protestantism is is saying look it's here it's here in the text and you can see for yourself that it's in the text and so uh hold me hold me accountable and so i think that's sometimes that's the that's the discomfort i feel in, in biblical preaching um i think it was it, it may have been jc ryle if it wasn't jc ryle it was um it was um I'm blank on his name, Simeon. Um, I can't think of his first name. Charles Simeon. Both. Uh, Charles Simeon. Yes, thank you. Charles Simeon, who he said, my, my goal in preaching is to, to preach with si such simplicity that my congregation says, well, I could have done that myself. Um, and so it's not, it's not, it's not fancy. It's not, um, hopefully it's, hopefully it's uh, emotive. Hopefully it's, something that gets to the heart of folks and uh, to their affections but but we should be doing it in such a way that the uh the power comes through from the text and not our own cleverness right and i think uh from what i'm hearing it seems like uh kind of in the spirit of evangelical or expository preaching i guess you could say is kind of a uh cultivating uh the listeners in the congregation to have a relationship with the word and, uh, and to familiarize yeah. them in the word. And, and, um, cause I've, I mean, no preacher would, would try to, well, maybe some, but most, most would honestly try to most honest priests would honestly like be like, Oh, well, yeah, I, I was preaching on the text or maybe, you know, uh, but, but sometimes to really just, live into the and uh you know kind of goes back to a lot of luther's theology about that the the word of promise right that was kind of the turning point for him in the reformation was that uh the words from scripture are a promise that have so much uh efficacy and power in themselves uh in just in just being proclaimed the promise of salvation to you and what christ has done for you and so um you know, I, I think kind of when, when I think of like the evangelical spirit of, especially his proclamation and preaching, I think of maybe that, maybe the pre, the pastor just, you know, cause it's not his or her own work. It's the, it's the power of the word working through that. Yeah. But what you mentioned by Luther uh, reminded me of a quote and um, by a, a mentor of mine again. And he's, his line is the, um, 
it's one of, it was one of his convictions in ministry, he said, and it was that the word of God does the work of God in the people of God through the spirit of God. Mm-hmm. And um, we, we can, we can trust, like, like you're saying with Luther, we can trust that the, the word properly proclaimed will, will do the work. Um, and so that's the, that's the uh, one of the main responsibilities of the preacher is to make sure that they're getting the word right um, so that the word can, can do the work. Sure. Um, so how would you define what an Anglican evangelical is? And I guess maybe like think, think maybe like how is this similar and different because I think there are similarities and also differences between maybe the popular perception of, of an evangelical. Well, it, the way the word is ca- tossed around in, in our yeah. current context, I mean, how is it similar and different from popular American evangelicalism? Yeah, that's, that's the million dollar question. Uh, <laughs> what is evangelicalism? And then when you, and then when you put something in the front of it, like you, uh, or behind it, evangelical Anglicanism, what, is, what does that mean? I think, um, first off, in terms of how it's understood often popular, popularly in our country now and, and really for the past few decades, um, my, one of my big arguments is that uh, evangelical is, is an ecclesiastical label, um, first and foremost. And so while, while there may be some um, evangelicals ecclesiastically who are also evangelicals politically, um, they, that doesn't necessarily have to be the case. And, and that's something that I find myself wrestling with over and over again of kind of how, how useful is this word? And um, I find that it's the best word to describe me, but I also find that it means I have to constantly be explaining it. Nobody, <laughs> nope. everyone tries to understand that for themselves. So, um, so ecclesiastical as, or uh, evangelical as an ecclesiastical label um, has to do again. Um, it's their the reformational principles. I think uh, the priority of scripture, the priority of, of uh, grace and, and faith, and those things that we find throughout um, throughout the uh, Protestant Reformation. And um, it often it often means, and, and in the case of when I explain it, it usually means a simpler approach to uh, the liturgy. Um, I uh, there is. I remember one time in seminary, I forget on what occasion, but we're celebrating, I was supposed to be celebrating evening prayer and the uh, candles were missing off of the altar. They had been taken some other event and, and a, the person who was uh, assisting me and in, in, in leading said, was kind of panicking, like, Oh, the kids are gone. What are they doing? I said, well, I think there's enough light that I can see by. <laughs> uh, because it's it's a big big sanctuary with lots of natural light and they kind of looked at me like what are you talking about I said well really i mean i'm not really too fussy about whether there's candles or not because i think primarily the candles are there to help you see so um so that that uh often oftentimes i mean the the low low church uh, is a way of describing that um simpler vestments, um, less, um, less kind of ornamentation, less, um, less, um, 
pageantry, uh, I guess maybe is a word. Uh, I also think that one of the problems, though, again, when you, well, what does that word mean? Um, evangelicals are often assumed to be very sloppy with the liturgy or, right. or they don't, they don't really care about the liturgy. And so they're going to kind of bring in, bring in other things and kind of make it, make it their own service or whatnot. Um, and I think that's, that's often is a valid, um, a valid critique, but I think that, um, evangelicals at their heart or Anglican evangelicals at their heart, uh, are, are people who take the liturgy seriously. Um, and especially what is, uh, specifically prescribed uh, in in the Book of Common Prayer, because we recognize that those are things that are value and have had value for for quite a long. So, so yeah, um, and and then also, I mean, part of being an evangelical is, I mean, is there in the word? Uh, I mean, we're we're gospel gospel people. We're good news people. Um, sometimes. I often find because uh, folks in the Anglican tradition aren't as familiar with you know, evangelicals, they assume that we're about evangelism or evangelismers or something like that, which is which is true. Um, but it's not uh, evangelicals aren't just. It's not just that we think that people should be we should be telling people about the gospel. Um, there's even, an evangelist and an evangelical are two different things. But um, evangelicals should be evangelists, and um, I think you'd have to maybe put in the, the show notes or something like that. There's an article a while back that Bishop George Sumner in Dallas uh, wrote, and he talked about being in a, in a uh, bishop's meeting and um, him being a more conservative in the in the Episcopal Church, and, and one of the more liberally minded uh, bishops said something along the lines of, "As much as I as much as I don't agree with evangelicals, we need evangelicals because they're the ones who are excited about their faith and are telling others about it." Mm-hmm. Um, and that was something she said she said publicly, and I thought that was that was a really interesting thought. So um, so yeah, we're we're focused focused on the gospel and um, and seeing how that plays out in, in different areas, whether that's liturgy, whether that's preaching, whether that's uh, hospitality. Um, so I think that's, that's the best yeah. answer I can, I short, somewhat short answer. Oh, that was a good answer. And, and I'll, I'll, I'll look for that article. I mean, I'm, I'm usually good with uh, finding stuff quickly. Annotating. I, I can find it. Oh, oh yeah. Off the top of my head. Oh yeah. Just send it to me. Um, I'll make a note of it. Um, but yeah, man, I get your, uh, well, and, and coming from, I've been in regions of the country where in the Episcopal church, it's a uh, broad to high church on the continuum of broad church leaning high, um, which for our listeners, you know, I mean, a lot of them will know, but, but the, the level of the uh, emphasis on ritual and, uh, you know, a, a lot of churches have a uh, liturgical way of doing things that has a lot to be mindful of, and a lot, you know, so, um, and uh, so, and, and I've encountered liturgical fussiness in those, in those settings. And I could, I could totally walk the walk of the broad high leaning, you know, I mean, that's, that's, you know, what I, that's all I knew in the Episcopal church for a while. I was raised Lutheran, but I, coming to the Episcopal church, that's, that's all I really knew. And I could totally walk that walk, but I totally, I get what some of that, yeah, fussiness might get 
does sometimes get in the way, like when the, when you're so preoccupied in the minutes before uh, service is going to begin about, oh my gosh, we didn't do this thing or that thing. Like, well, you know, if Jesus is preached and, you know, that is what ultimately counts. And that's going to make up for the people that come and experience this. It's going to make up for any of that. They're not even going to notice, you know, at least in my kind of view of things. And, um, and Corona, yeah. to be to be honest, has kind of made me a little more, I guess, low church <laughs> in some ways, just because uh, uh, there's so many things that we uh, can't do because we can't, you know, whatever, can't have the number of people involved or the, the the liturgy is stripped down to a certain, what we can do is kind of stripped down to a certain extent. And so by, you know, just by default, we've had, it's, you know, a lot of churches have become more low, I guess you could say, I mean, it might not be the best term for it, but, um, you know, and, and I think it's, it's, but it's also been a time for the church and for the country, for people in general, just to really think about the things that matter. And, and maybe it's a good point for the church to see, um, what is the news it's proclaiming? Is it the good news? I mean, is it, I mean, is that has to take the forefront? I think ultimately, you know, so, and I'm sorry, Zach, what were you going to say? No, that's, yeah, I I think, I think you're spot on with that. Um, I think that's been part of, um, I think oftentimes, and, and this is, I mean, this was true of me coming I mean, my experience in England was of, I mean, very, very low church, very informal. I mean, very, um, and, and I thought kind of like, okay, wow. I mean, this is like, I, I get this. I understand this. And then coming back and there's like, oh, wow, there's some people who take it a lot serious, liturgy a lot serious, more seriously, all these different things. But I think one of the, one of the important things that I, that I try to point out, um, to folks and especially when I get an opportunity maybe like maybe in a um like a a taught a taught Eucharist or or something like that and I like to point out um I mean I'm I'm most familiar with the the 79 obviously uh but prayer book but I like to point out the the rubrics and what you what you have to do and what you Mm -hmm. may do and what's not mentioned and and so one of the points I'd like to make is if you, if you only did the things you had to do in a service, um, there's, those are very few things actually. And that's, that's a legitimate way of of doing the service. (laughs) And and I agree, brother. I think like the, the 79 prayer book. And I think when I, I mean, I'm not a prayer book scholar, but a lot of the prayer book tradition leaves that type of latitude. And I love my brothers and sisters in the upper Midwest, but sometimes I think uh, the Mishnu book, is the book of common prayer and it's not, you know, so, I mean, you, there, you can do, I mean, there are, there are definitely essentials and they're fundamentals and there's things that, you know, this, and, and so I, I think, yes, I, I mean, low churchers, I mean, it, you, however loaded of a term that is, they, they, you know, not to write them off as just sloppy. They don't care about liturgy or something. I, I don't think you're right. I don't think that would be accurate to say about them. So. Yeah, nor, nor, nor. I mean, you can't say that any more than you, you could say people who are who are very high church and, and very kind of uh, uh, ritualistic are sure. obviously don't think about what they're doing. It's just sure. All oh, oh yeah, it goes both ways for yeah. sure. I mean, um, I mean, some of. I mean, I've been in some high church settings where I, I where I just felt it that what was being done wasn't to worship the liturgy. It was, it was to worship and glorify God, you know, 
And a lot of that ritual goes back to the, to the children of God, you know, in the old Testament. So, I mean, I, I mean, and this leads me, this is a perfect segue to the wings of Anglicanism. So for our listeners, there's in a lot of, a lot of our listeners will already have an idea of this and, or just know this, that there's three wings. It's generally said there's, there's three wings of Anglicanism. Um, sometimes um, that's said to be, you know, high church, broad church, low church. I think that's kind of a, a reduction. It's kind of been, it's kind of devolved into that. Oh, like how much ritual and high, how much yeah. incense, how much high ornate worship do you have? Is it high, me, medium or low? Medium meaning, meaning like broad. But I like to think of it theologically also and primarily um i think uh and and so you let's think of like evangelical which we've already covered on a little bit anglo-catholic and um classically called latitudinarian but it's also you know we know it as liberal kind of three different theological persuasions they kind of correspond to the low broad high church um and we don't have a lot of I mean, we could hold, we could do a whole another episode about that, but you know, there are people that are theologically evangelical, but in the liturgically are very high or angle. I mean, so there, it doesn't perfect correspond, but um, kind of breaking it down. I, and uh, I want to share something Rowan Williams wrote um, about the three different theological persuasions. And um, he, it's a book called, uh, I'll put it in the show notes, but it's called uh, um, Love's, you might know the title, Zach. I literally, Love's Redeeming Work. Uh, Yes. Classical compilation, uh, or great compilation. Are you still with me, Zach? Your face kind of froze on our our Zoom, but. Oh, he's here. He's here. Good. Uh, Love's Redeeming Work is a great work by Rowan Williams. Well, it's edited by Rowan Williams. It's a compilation of Anglican authors, spiritual writers, clergy throughout the Anglican, I mean, since the Reformation. And Rowan Williams kind of breaks down the three theological wings of Anglicanism. And this is what he says about him. He says for the evangelical, um, those in the evangelical corner, what we're talking about tonight, emphasize that the English Reformation was an affirmation of the absolute supremacy of Scripture in all matters affecting the church. Anglo-Catholics, that their sense of spiritual and sacramental continuity with the early fathers and the faith of the undivided church, that's what their emphasis was. And then the liberals point out that early Anglicans never bound themselves too tightly to a single confessional formula focused on specific theological principles. Um, so that's kind of Rowan Williams summary of the three different, I mean, the kind of, he's always good with a comprehensive view of Anglicanism, you know, and like, and what all the different, you know, currents are. And uh, so I don't know, I thought that was a good way of, of putting it. Um, but you know, I don't know. What are your, I, I just, I felt like sharing that quote. What do you think about that, Zach? <laughs> no, I think, I think, uh, yeah, I, I, I've seen that book. I, I haven't actually uh, dove into it, dived into it yet, but I think, um, I think that's, I think that's a pretty good, if, if I had to sum it up in, in as few sentences as he did, and I, I couldn't because I'm not as smart as he is, but um, that's, that's how I, I would do it. I think, um, I think if to 
to tweak that a little bit from an Anglican, I mean, from an evangelical perspective, um, the kind of, if you want to play, play evangelicalism off the, off the other two, um, the idea that, well, Anglo-Catholicism goes back to the, to the earliest parts of the church. And, and so that's, that's their strength. And that's and the, uh, the evangelical weakness is that it's, it's uh, reformational, uh, for mm-hmm. example, or kind of ref- afterwards. And uh, one of the, I've been, uh, I read recently um, uh, um, Thomas Cranmer's like big work on, on the sacraments and, and it's something that Ashley, Ashley Knoll is a uh, Cranmerian scholar is, is doing right now. He, uh, they just discovered even more of his, um, I forget what the title title is, but they're, basically Cranmer's notebooks um, where that he took in shorthand for all the different, so he'd read something and copy it down in shorthand and then he'd use it later in, in a sermon or whatever. And how often he goes back, how often he goes back to the early church fathers. Um, and so, so I think one of the, um, with, with that thought, I, I agree that's probably how it's popularly understood, but I think evangelicalism at its best does go back to the earliest parts of the church. Um, and that was something that the reformers such as Cranmer were at pains to do. Um, I mean, over and over again, they, they, the line, their line of arguing isn't um, being in agreement do- with the, with the early church fathers doesn't make us right, but it definitely improves our arguments. Um, sure. And it's, and as I've just always astounded at how much, how much they go back to the father's, and and then with the with the more kind of liberal side or the uh, yeah Latinarian side, I think that again even I think that's a, a fair critique. Oftentimes that um, that sometimes we as evangelicals try to nail things down too tightly. But I also do think that, and I realize I'm in a minority position here, but I think the the articles are a confessional statement. And um, they hold um, hold similar position to Augsburg and, and other uh, reformational confessional statements. And what I love about them is, I mean, the problem with the articles is that they're too vague, but the problem with the articles is that they're too specific. Um, and I, I love that balance in the articles, um, that it's a relatively short document. Um, yes, you have the homilies that go with them and, and the prayer book, but in the grand scheme of things, it's a relatively short document and, and there's, and there's, there's, there's wiggle room. Um, I don't, I don't think there's as much wiggle room as some people think there are is, uh, I, but I also think there's more wiggle room than others think there is. So, but I, I agree. I think that's a good, a yeah. good, sum- it's a good and, kind of surface level. Um, yeah. Yeah. I like what you said about, um, kind of uh because uh, yeah i think i think you add more to what i mean for i mean uh you talk a lot i'm, I'm not like uh i like the english reform I, i'm what i'm really good at for my background is the lutheran reformation and i i know um from that side of the reformation the german side i mean uh uh chemnitz melanchthon luther uh were very deep into the patristics the church yeah. Uh, and and I do sense, from what I'm uh, gathering, what you're saying, and I've sensed this too, that there is a type of revisionistic history that Anglo-Catholicism uh, 
has suggested or outright like positive that, you know, um, at the Reformation kind of just was a kind of a break from all this tradition that it disregarded and, and completely turned, you know, uh, uh, entered a new chapter and threw out the old chapter. Uh, but that's not really an honest look at what the, I mean, if you study the reformers, like you said with Cramner and, uh, and also parts of the continental, they, they were very interested in, and, um, in what Christian theologians of the first several centuries, uh, were saying, uh, and, uh, you know, they, they, they really uh, uh, appealed to them and cited them in their works. And so um, they weren't like anti-everything that came before them. And I, I do think that's kind of an Anglo-Catholic revisionism that I've sensed too. Um, what were you? Oh, you were also saying something. Oh, the 39 articles. So like, uh, um, yeah, so there's been, for our listeners, the 39 articles are in the back of, uh, well, for like, uh, Episcopalians and also ACNA worshipers that still use 79 prayer book. Uh, the 39 articles are in the back of the um, prayer book as a historical document. And they were uh, largely products of that time era of the reformation. And it was as the church of England was navigating its belief system as its own church. And, uh, and so they're very good to read. Um, they, they can kind of, bring you into that world of those debates at the time, but they also touch on a lot of important things. And I, and I think it does serve as a good cate, uh, catechesis tool for some of the basic fundamentals. Like Zach said, I think it, there is a lot of leeway in a lot of them. I like what they say about predestination, for instance. Um, it's funny when I joined EFAC, uh, I, uh, I read the kind of the long statement of this is what I believe is what I believe. And I was like, yeah, I believe that Bible's the word of God. Yeah. Jesus saved my sins, justification, substitution, atonement. I don't know if it says substitution atonement, but that's what I believe. So yeah, it's all good. Then I got to the 39 articles as like a, as an exposition of this. I'm like, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm good with 38 of them. I, there's that one though, like, cause of my Lutheran leanings, man. I don't know. I don't know if I can get on with the reformed view of the Eucharist. <laughs> So hopefully, uh, but, you know, but there is some leeway there too. I mean, if I were to, I don't have the article in front of me. What article number is that even on the Lord's Supper? I think it's 17 or 18. I think. Yeah, I never um, remember the numbers like uh, for those, but I remember the, the sub, yeah, I, don't, the content, I don't, you know, I can't cite it, you know, but yeah, yeah, that's, and one of the ways to look at the articles, and again, I'm not, I'm going to mess the numbers up, but um, like, <laughs> we often refer to articles like one through eight as, as Catholic articles. These are sure. the first eight articles, like any, any creedal Christian should be able to, to agree with. Um, and then nine through, what is it? Nine through 20. Oh, I should be better at this, but nine through 20 something are, are Protestant kind of most, most Protestants. Reformational. Should be able to agree. Reformational. Yeah. yeah reformational. <laughs> and then, and then, Last last fifteen or so are are more specifically um, Anglican and, and yeah. related to the church, and, and that's where you get things like in relation to the civil civil authorities and in relation to money. I mean, these are uh, specifically uh, English questions that are being answered. And so, right, you're right. Uh, I, I totally blanked on that. Yeah, there was a kind of the civil part too that was included 
incorporated into the what the articles addressed. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and so so yeah, it's that um, one one through eight. If you're okay with one through eight, I can get along with you. If you're if you can do that middle section, I mean, I'm even a better friend. But if you can do all thirty nine, I'm your best best friends for life. Best friends for life. <laughs> so uh, speaking of the uh, Anglo Catholic revisionism, I want to share something I read from Alistair McGrath. It's a little lengthy. I don't know if I want to share it all, but um, basically um, that he, Alistair McGrath basically argued that um, the English Reformation, uh, that Anglicanism can validly be seen as, um, as, as Protestant. He said that there's an argument that says Anglicanism was never Protestant. It retained its Catholic identity and resisted any temptations to become part of the Protestant movement. But but uh, historians, serious historians, know this to be um, false. He said, even though um, uh, some Anglicans show themselves to be critical at points of the first generation of Protestant leaders in the English Reformation, for instance, William Laud, Richard Neal. He said that people like Laud and Neal, quote, cannot be thought of as Catholics, nor can their Protestant identity be denied for that reason. In the first place, they were generally affirmative of their Protestant credentials. And second, their sacramental and ecclesiological views can easily be accommodated within the spectrum of Protestant possibilities. Protestantism is a big tent movement, offering a surprising variety of possibilities within its vision of Christian thought and life. Luther, it must be remembered, had a much higher view of baptism in the Eucharist than Zwingli, who's another Protestant early reformer, a fact that which is reflected in modern Lutheranism at this point, yet nobody has seriously suggested that Lutheranism is not a form of Protestantism on account of these sacramental views. Some point, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> some points that Charles I, as a classic representative of Anglo-Catholicism, yet people who point to him as this to easily overlook the awkward fact that on the evening before his execution, Charles told his 13-year-old daughter, Elizabeth, that he was to die for, main, quote, maintaining the true Protestant religion, unquote, and urged her to read the works of Lancelot Andrews and Richard Hooker to, quote, ground her against popery, unquote. Others suggest that Anglicanism is the middle way between Protestant and Catholicism. Yet historians such as Dearman McCulloch have rightly pointed out that the middle way developed in England in the late 16th century was between Lutheranism and Calvinism. The middle way which resulted was neither Calvinist or Lutheran, but it was certainly Protestant, unquote. <laughs> I knew you'd love that, Zach. So. Yeah, that's, that's, <laughs> I, was, I, was, I was hoping that we'd get to the to via media, so, uh, and yeah, uh, McGrath says that. Is that from his uh, book on the Reformation? What book is that from? No, it's from an article he published in 2007, which was uh, you can't find anymore. But it's that excerpt. It's a much longer excerpt than what I read. Is quoted in a blog, and I'm going to put the link to it in our show notes. But that like original art, he put it in like some Irish news thing. I don't know. Yeah, and it's not like online anymore. But that excerpt is still online. So. And I was like, wow, you can obviously, I mean, Alistair McGrath's a prolific writer. You could probably find that a same type of thing in his writings, but you know, so yeah. Um, thought it spoke well to that. But. 
Yeah, and I don't, I don't know if you want to, this, this might be diving too deep, um, but in terms of thinking about, about that, I mean, especially those going back to like the three, three branches, or is that, I forget if you said branches, three wings um, of idea of Anglicanism. I think something that's particularly difficult in our um, North American context is the the uh, Episcopal Church was without kind of any evangelical influence from the turn of the 20th century until the kind of early 60s. Um, and, and then when that evangelical influence reappeared, it was in, in the form of the charismatic renewal movement in the Episcopal Church, which, is, which has similarities to the evangelical church that kind of the evangelical movement that was part of the uh, Episcopal Church in the, in the, I get my centuries mixed up, in the 19th century, um, and, but was also much different than, than the kind of the evangelicalism of Packer and uh, Stott and, and McGrath in, in England. And so I think oftentimes the, the confusion I run into or the, um, the, rebuttal that I run into has to do with that is that people have never, especially in, in the Episcopal church and even to some degree, um, slightly lesser degree, but same in the ACNA and whatnot is people have never experienced this, uh, this evangelical Anglicanism. And so they think it must be something new. It's something that is, and, um, in, in reality, it was just something that wasn't around for a good right. chunk of the, wasn't around as as the uh, liberal theology was taking over in the early part of the 20th century, and as the Oxford movement and, and whatnot was really ramping up, and so so there just it became in the Episcopal Church. I think it it feels like two wings in the Episcopal Church uh, to me, at least yeah. um, as compared to Church of England, that it's very much a, a three wing kind of place. So the evangelical, I mean, wing, it's very historical and it's, uh, you could, you could say arguably it was, it was kind of the dominant, you know, it, it's what classical, classical Anglicanism was. I know it's not that simple, but um, yeah. And it's funny because it, when you mentioned Church of England a lot um, uh, and you spent some time there, that, that is where I first experienced, um, I had kind of a culture shock. I went to uh, I took a, my last year of seminary, I took a travel course to England and, uh, under Jason Fout, who has done a lot of work on, on the evangelism in in diocese of London. And, uh, we went there and we, it was mainly like a week long course where we learned about HTB and all the things that have come out of HTB for our listeners. That's Holy Trinity Brompton. And I went to, we went to a worship service there and it was like, it was like these like praise and worship bands playing music and stuff and which isn't like my style. And that's not necessarily like, you know, that's a very contemporary form of worship and that doesn't necessarily like, you know, equate to evangelical even, but, um, but nevertheless, I would have never seen anything like that, like in the Episcopal church in the U S. Um, but it was really like neat to see that it had like, it was, it was like full of people 
and people like with like in our age range, but I, I don't think it was the worship so much because like, I, I mean, I'm not even like big on like praise band worship, but I think it was this, the messaging there. And that, you know, this was the, this was the hope of the world is, is right here. You know, we are uh, proclaiming the word to you, what Jesus, Jesus is going to transform and change your life. And um, it was, it was like a really great experience to see that. And uh, like, I never knew, like, I thought I was going to London. I thought like, I'm not going to see something like this. Cause like I watched the movies and I read the plays that church of England seemed like a very, you know, these big Gothic cathedrals and it was going to, you know, it was going to be very, you know, very high and dry. And like, it was, you know, it was like, it was not what I pictured church of England was like. And I mean, that's kind of, you know, in the diocese of London, at least that's what it's like. And they've, uh, since the year 2000, they've experienced such growth, you know, um, um, when that's, it's with so much the Western world, you don't see that you see a decline in church, church activity and, and, yep. and but diocese of London was like, it was the opposite. And so that was a, definitely a learning experience for me. And, um, you know, and so I, I, and I realized, wow, this evangelical thing, obviously it's not the, it's not 18th century evangelicalism. This is like guitar evangelicalism, but, uh, you know, <laughs> any, you know, and, and even earlier 20th century people like J.I. Packer and John Stott are not, the evangelicals of a couple hundred years ago, but I realized that this, this uh, wing, this expression of Anglicanism kind of stayed alive and took the reforms in England when it wasn't really so much a thing in the Episcopal church outside of course, parishes that do have that. Um, so uh, it was, you know, it was interesting, but um, so yeah, uh, kind of, uh, I, we covered a lot tonight and uh, I just, I'm curious, what are kind of your favorite Anglican evangelical authors? I mean, I, I follow you on Facebook. I see you posting quotations like all the time from these books. You read so much. That's, and so, I, I, yeah, I, 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 good. Now I was saying, what are some of the, what are some of the big, big some of the ones you'd recommend to kind of learn about evangelical Anglicanism? I mean, I, I think it's it's really hard to go wrong with John Stott and J.R. Packer. Um, mm-hmm. Those are those are where I would start. Very, they're very accessible. Um, Alistair McGrath. Um, I don't I don't go to him as often, but we just uh, finished up uh, an adult catechesis course at the parish here using his book on the Apostles' Creed. Um, and yeah, that was the the long quote that you gave earlier. I I recognized kind of a a line and a half in this popular level kind of hundred page book there. Um, one book, uh, one, one author that's been very helpful for me um, in, in terms of liturgy is uh, a guy named Colin Buchanan. Um, he was a bishop in the church of England. I can't remember what diocese he had been bishop of, uh, but he has written a few different books and um, was part of, was part of the, theological and liturgical consultation um, in the in this kind of 60s and 70s um, in in England and was partially responsible for the Anglican service book which was kind of the Church of England's version of the 79 prayer book um, and some other works so he's 
Colin Buchanan is somebody I would recommend if, to under, have an evangelical understanding of, of liturgy. Um, and then older, older authors. Um, I mean, Thomas Cranmer, it's their, their ridiculously long 17th, 16th century sentences um, that just go on and on and on. But um, he wrote so much, so many wonderful things. Or the uh, the Book of Homilies, uh, which he, um, I mean, a lot of those came from Cranmer, but um, the homilies serve as an as an exposition of of the uh, the articles. And then other folks, J.C. Ryle, um, uh, a great uh, the first bishop of Liverpool, a great uh, evangelical, the turn of the uh, in the nineteenth century, and uh, Charles Simeon, it's another another person. Then. Another um, one of the great things about Anglicanism is you often discover later on that like, oh, this person was an Anglican. And I just never really thought of that. I mean, and so we have so many great I mean, Isaac Watts's hymns, um, the the Wesley's hymns. I mean, so much of this we take for granted. So we much do. of our tradition we take for granted. We sing them. So I mean, so, these are regularly sung hymns in any Episcopal church. I mean, really? Yeah. Um, yep. You know, and uh, so where does uh, I, um, I was gonna say, uh, where do you see? Um, I'm kind of just looking at my notes here because I uh, we're gonna wrap up in a minute, but I'm kind of looking at like evangelism is kind of uh, put as a priority uh, for EFAC. Um, and the primacy of the word, and um, we're going to have to have another episode in a couple months because I had a lot of things to ask you and just to pick your brain on. But um, where do you, I guess I we're... podcast. I'll just keep coming on to your podcast. Hey, man, just, well, I mean, yeah, I mean, but yeah, I'd love to have you on. I mean, yeah, dude. Um, I was going to say, where, where do you see the, but the evangelical, it is in the the U.S. church. And it's, in, I mean, what what do you see it offering for the Episcopal Church in the U.S., I guess I could put it that way. Yeah, that's uh, that's a good question. Um, I think, I mean, at a, at a very pragmatic level, um, evangelical churches tend to grow, um, and that is something that the Episcopal Church needs. And that's, like I said, I'll I'll, I'll dig out that article for you. Um, but that's one of the things that uh, folks who would very much disagree with the evangelical position, acknowledge and um, say either either we need them or we need to somehow become more like them. Um, so on a pragmatic level, um, I think that's it. If that the evangelical preaching, the evangelical teaching, the evangelical, um, even the liturgy um, of even when it's simpler, um, often, oftentimes the hope in, in the simplicity is that it points even clearer to to what it's demonstrating the uh the 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 uh object lesson that we see in the i mean obviously more than that but i mean in in baptism and, and the eucharist um and if we strip away some things we might see those things in a in a better light so uh have that and ultimately i mean it comes it comes back to um that proclamation of the word and um all these Kind of, uh, EFAC has uh, five five goals, and you mentioned the the, the primary uh, teaching to teaching people how to how to preach evangelically and biblically, and 
and then the other ones fall under that and it's uh practicing liturgy in uh in this way and um and doing evangelism and those are all just different ways of it's just different ways of seeing the word revealed um and so that's and like i said that's my conviction that that's that's how God works. The, the word of God does the work of God in the people of God, through the spirit of God. And so, um, so yeah, I think that does that. And I think there's also such, so, uh, so many large, so many parts of the Anglican communion, especially are more evangelical or, um, or more, um, the, the Episcopal church is, is there's, we're a, we're a minority um, in, in generally how how the Episcopal Church is thought of the Anglican Church of Canada, for example. Those other churches are more of a minority in the in the worldwide communion, and I think evangelicalism is often more in step with the rest of the communion, and and maybe can maybe maybe us as American evangelicals can demonstrate the strengths of of what's being offered worldwide, uh, like. I mean, even like you mentioned, Holy Holy Trinity Brompton. I mean, I'm not that's that's not the church I would go to in London, but they're obviously doing something right. And and so, what are they what are they doing that that we're not doing? Um, right. And right. broadening our broadening our uh, horizons of what it means to be an Anglican and, and what it means to to live faithfully. Right. Right. Well put. Um, thank you. Zach, uh, this has been a great episode. Um, yeah, I'd love to have you back on again. And um, we just like scratched the surface of a lot of this stuff. But that's that's, um, a, that's a, yeah, you've you've got me talking. So now I'm now maybe I can do a podcast. I gotta, I just gotta start spitting all this stuff out and finding other people. Um, I mean, I got another thirty else. minutes if you want to. I mean, <laughs> you know. my, my 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 wife is. Has I'm hearing lots of people in your back. I'm hearing a dog in my so house. So. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But um, thank you, Zach. Uh, bless you. Thank you. Um, uh, and we will um, we'll connect again. And uh, this has been a great episode. And blessings on your ministry, your continuing ministry at Christ Church. And, um, you know, God is, God is with you. And so yes. thank thank and, you. Thank uh, you very much. Thanks for this opportunity. I'm looking forward to, uh, to catching up on the, the episodes I've missed and uh, seeing, seeing what comes next. So. Oh, too kind. Yes, we, yeah, we, <laughs> we're going to start. Thank you. And, and I have, you know, I have, I have you to thank and my other guests to thank for this because y'all make this show and it's a thank you. Uh, so uh, for our listeners, stay tuned. We have some exciting couple episodes uh, coming. We, we kind of started to scratch the surface of the Reformation. We have a Booster Scholar and a Cramner Scholar, respectively, coming on next month. And so, and then we have a mashup episode. Uh, I was going to say it's a surprise, but I already posted it. So it's not really a surprise. We, I have a mashup, mashup episode with Isaac from Miserable Offenders. Zach's not his head. He knows Miserable Offenders. So, um, yes. Yes. Uh, so, uh, yes, uh, we will, uh, we will, we will catch everyone on our, uh, when we, when we, when you hear from us again. So for our listeners, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May his face shine on you and lift you up in his favor and give you peace. Amen. All right. Amen. Take care, Zach. God bless Thank you. Thank you. Good night.
Hi, and thank you for listening. This is Reverend Andrew Christensen again. I hope you enjoyed this episode, and don't forget to check out our previous episodes of Doth Protest Too Much. If you're listening to us on Apple Podcasts or another streaming service that lets you rate and review our show, please do so. Five stars, one star, however you honestly feel we can take it and would love and appreciate your feedback. Also, for any further questions or suggestions for our show, please email me at dothprotesttomuchpodcast at gmail.com. God bless your day.